Welcome to Myanmar in a Potshell, the podcast that puts current developments in Myanmar into context. My name is Rodion Abikhausen, and today's topic is education in times of uprising. I would like to discuss the issue with Marie Lal and Kang Pyutut. Marie Lal is Chair in Education and South Asian Studies at the UCL Institute of Education and former UCL Pro Vice Provost for South Asia, including Myanmar. Her research focuses on the politics of South Asia, including education, as well as ethnicity, conflict, social exclusion, the formation of national identity, and the linkage between national identity, citizenship, and education in India, Pakistan, and Myanmar. Kang Pyu Tut has been active in Myanmar's education sector for more than 20 years. She has worked in various roles at the Ministry of Education, the British Council and Department for International Development, Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office. Her research and academic publications focus on educational leadership, continuous professional development for teachers, and monitoring and evaluation of education aid. Thank you very much for joining us today. So let's start with the talk. So the last time schools in Myanmar made international headlines was when the military government after the coup wanted them to be reopened, but many teachers did not show up for teaching as they were taking part in the civil disobedience movement. So usually education does not make international headlines, but from your point of view, Why is education key for Myanmar's development and Myanmar's future? Maybe, Marie, you can start. So education is uh, actually quite central to the entire political process in Myanmar. Um, so we have seen um, in the various parts of history, be it 1988 with the student uprising, that education was a part of what happened there. Education was leading under the reforms under President Insane post-2012. And now again, education is absolutely at the heart of what is going on with the coup. So the reason that when you're looking at uh, education making international headlines, it's because um, not only do the Myanmar people see education as a key part of their future and their development in order to be able to quote unquote catch up with the rest of ASEAN and Asia, but also the international community has for the last decade poured in a lot of money in order to be able to help a reform process. So that's why uh, the coup putting this to an end has um, propelled this into the international uh, media and also for international political concern. Yeah, thank you. And uh, Kang Pyu, what is your uh, thought about this uh, point? I have worked in the Ministry of Education and a number of international agencies. But what I am saying here are uh, just my personal view, not reflecting any organization or agencies. Thanks. I would like to agree with uh, uh, Marie that uh, we have been really hopeful about education reform processes. And then we have been really looking forward to the benefits that those education reforms will bring to our youths and to our country. However, uh, unfortunately, these reforms were reversed uh, and uh, stopped uh, in a very short time. So uh, it is really difficult for parents and children in Myanmar because uh, before the reforms, we uh, had lived 
in a sort of era which is quite closed, uh, quite centralized, without uh, regional or international recognition of the learning inside the country. So there were issues about access, uh, quality and inclusion uh, in the, before the reform process. And we were starting to hope that we would be able to address them. But these hopes were dashed away in February. Yes. So thank you both for uh, making clear that education is important and at the core of uh, the crisis we see at the moment in Myanmar. So I would like, uh, before we go into the education system closely, I would like to talk a little bit um, about the history. So teachers have been at the forefront of the CDM and Myanmar has a rich history of protests led by students and teachers. So for example, the National Day remembers the student-led protest against the British in 1920. So do you see a kind of continuity here? Yes, uh, since the colonial days, the universities, their students, teachers, they were at the forefront of, you know, uh, any reform. And uh, being students, they uh, really want to see a change in their country. And then this has continued until today because we have been seeing that those who were actively, uh, uh, who were very active during the 1988 student-led uh, oppositions, these people still uh, continue in 2021 uh, movements uh, against the dictatorship. And Marie, what is your take on this continuity or long history of student and teachers' protests? I think we need to go back to the way Myanmar divides society. So if you look at traditional, even pre-colonial part in Burma, you always have that uh, division between the farmers, the military, the warriors, um, and then the Sangha, the Buddhist monkhood. And then you have that one space where there is uh, the possibility of critical thinking, and that is in education. Because in the other three spaces, there isn't that much because it's generally a top-down kind of hierarchy. I, mean, I don't want to speak for all the farmers, but definitely military and sangha tends to be a very hierarchical. Pro and Myanmar is a very hierarchical society, as the listeners will know. But in, in the education space, specifically, specifically in universities, there is that critical thinking space. And when students access that, It's like a whole new world opens to them and they start questioning. They start questioning the military. They start questioning religion. They start questioning society. Um, and this is why you always see change being driven through the student protest because the students pick up these ideas and say, well, this is not what we want. This is not the country we want. We want change. And that does, it doesn't matter if that was in pre-colonial times, colonial times um, and post-colonial times up to the 80s. Uh, because we tend to speak about 88, but where there were student protests well before in the 60s and in the 70s. Um, so you, you can see those protests sort of um, like a string of pearls throughout Myanmar history and the students taking the brunt of the, the, the wrath of whoever is in power. And actually, there's a lot of societal support for students because they see the students are the ones who have been beaten, who have been shot, who have been trying to change the system for you know the the good of the entire population 
Thank you. So you already mentioned that there has been uh, they have been uh, there has been a development in education, and there are different phases. And um, I know we cannot dive into all the details, but maybe you can give us a kind of an overview of the education system in the country, especially before COVID nineteen, before the coup d'état, and after. Um, and so uh, maybe Marie, you can start, and then you, uh, uh, Kang Pu can add something and elaborate certain points. Actually, the way we would like to do it is we'd like to speak about three eras. Um, so there is the era which is from the late 1980s um, right through to 2012, which is when the reform process started. And then there is the 2012 to 2020 reform period. And then there is a post-coup, post-2020 period. So I let Kaim Pugh talk about the pre-2012 era simply because she actually went through her education right through. Um, and whilst I was a visitor in Myanmar for the last 20 years, I didn't actually physically uh, engage with education apart from 2005 and 2006 when I uh, was teaching in Yangon and in Mandalay. But um, so I think she can give a better overview and I'll come in to talk about the reforms. Thanks, Marie. Yes, uh, I experienced uh, the education myself and uh, I uh, have seen that before 2012, what we experienced is, as I said before, very centralized, although the country itself is diverse and complex. So there will be the Central Ministry of Education uh, uh, managing and administering uh, uh, managing, you know, uh, the sort of education that they would like to shape for the whole uh, nation. And uh, unfortunately, that sort of education was not recognized outside of Myanmar. And uh, for example, there will be about uh, 10 years of secondary education, where else we would be seeing 12 years of uh, secondary education. So at that time, the ministry will decide that let's just shorten the university education to three years. And then uh, let's uh, make students pass easily so that they can progress. So you can see that there are serious quality issues and then not addressing the learning gap caused by disruptions. And these decisions are made at the center uh, without uh, much consultations, as far as I could recall. And uh, children and parents, they had no other choice than these ministry uh, provision of education. Uh, and we are also seeing that the inclusion aspect of the education itself is uh, something we would like to question. So, uh, and then, you know, I can keep on uh, talking, but I would let uh, Mary comes in if, if there are anything. So, I mean, when you reach 2012, um, which is after the 2010 elections and the President Insane um, administration has taken over, uh, there is an opening towards aid agencies. For the very first time, um, the government actually allows international aid to come into most sectors, including education. Prior to President Insane, UNICEF and JICA were involved in the country, but it wasn't really, it was support to the system rather than a reform process. And this reform process starts with a comprehensive education sector review, um, understanding what are the problems. And as Kaimfu mentioned, it's all very top down. It's all very uh, uh, centralized. Um, and literally, I remember when I was doing the start of my research, I was sort of listening to teachers saying, if our roof is 
broken or our toilets are broken, we have to send a request up to the township education office, which then goes to the state education office. And that will then go to the Ministry of Education. And then sort of a year later, we might hear back that there's no money. So ultimately, we round up the parents and they will come and help us repair the toilet or repair the roof. So it's almost like a grand trunk road, which goes up to the ministry and then comes back. So when the aid agency started engaging with Myanmar's education sector, they decided that everything needed to reform. And actually, the Myanmar Ministry of Education also agreed everything needed reform at, at basic education level and at higher education level. So um, the aid agencies who had, which, who had supported the comprehensive education sector uh, review then helped, put, helped the ministry put together a national uh, education, uh, what was called a national education sector plan. But then when the NLD came into power, they took over that plan and called it the National Education Strategic Plan, NESP for short. And it started to, um, uh, it started to reform the education sector across all parts. So basic education with regard to the curriculum, with regard to teacher training, with regard to uh, school infrastructure, um, absolutely everything in higher education, a little more slow cooked, um, but uh, the same thing, looking at curriculum, looking at a research, looking at ethics committees, looking at management, looking at how universities could become um, independent institutions that would not only basically teach from the textbook down to their students. Um, just want to pick up on what Kain Few has said in terms of the short short. Uh, education, basic education that Myanmar had. Uh, I was really shocked when I came to Myanmar first and I once was treated by a doctor who seemed like he was almost only 15. Uh, he'd, <laughs> he'd basically done his basic education and then um, a couple of years of university. And uh, so one of the things about the reform was also to bring university in line with other ASEAN countries. So 12 years of basic education in and a, Additionally, a KG, a kindergarten year, and then also bringing higher education in line with international norms. So not just three years for a full degree, but four to five years for a full degree. So very, very complex and difficult um, processes, because with all of this, you also need to upgrade teachers, upgrade uh, lecturers. So teacher training, Kain Pio can talk about more um, because simply teachers had to go from just having um, a certificate or a diploma to actually becoming degree holders. So one of the big things which was happening just before the coup was the first intake of teachers who would actually have a four-year education degree rather than just one or two years of teacher training. Okay, maybe we should stick a little bit to this um, reform era, which was ended by the coup d'etat, but I would like to come to the situation now, maybe a bit later. So, uh, Marie, in your last book, Myanmar's Education Reform, which is open access, you um, focused uh, on this uh, reform and you tried to, uh, yeah, to analyze um, how it worked out and that uh, how the system contributed maybe to increasing social injustice. And especially you diagnosed a large gap between political programs and practical implementation. And can you maybe say a little bit why this uh, implementation failed? And maybe Kang Pyu can add some experience uh, why it did not work out. So when we look at the reforms, we have to understand that there are a variety of stakeholders and they all have different um, priorities and different wishes. So in the first instance, you have the, the parents, the children, the students, the teachers, and the academics. 
And they are the stakeholders who are, in effect, the ones who are at the receiving end, but they are the ones who also have to carry through the reforms. Then you have the administration, uh, the Ministry of Education, and so on, and then you have the aid agencies. Now, the aid agencies want to bring in particular, quote, unquote, good practice from elsewhere that they advise the Ministry of Education to do. The Ministry of Education is sort of caught between a rock and a hard place because the funding comes from the aid agencies, but they have to deliver something in a context which might be quite different. And also there are, because people are not really used to operating um, in this new environment and the traditional hierarchies, there are blocks and roadblocks on the way to try and bring some of these programs to fruition. And there are also questions that um, cannot be answered. So teachers, academics, parents asking questions as to what these reforms are for and what they will bring to the system. And, and largely, the uh, the money came in, programs were developed, were spread out, but then um, you, you, as with all policy cycles, you need people to actually um, the implement the policies. And a lot, there's a big gap always between the political direction, I wouldn't say political will, there was plenty of political will, but the actual implementation on the ground where many of these programs didn't necessarily match the local requirements on the ground. I just want to correct one thing. Uh, my book doesn't talk about the increase of injustice. I was trying to do in the book to look at what the NLD in particular had promised, which had, the NLD had um, a big st strategy prior to the 2015 elections about increasing social justice. And my argument in the book is that whilst they supported the reforms, those reforms did not result in a reduction of social injustice. They didn't necessarily increase the injustice, in some cases they might have, but they didn't address the problems on the ground. And largely that's a problem because and that's not only for Myanmar, that international aid agencies come in with particular program aims, which might not always be the right solutions for the context at hand. And generally speaking, one would be better off working with local agencies, supporting local agencies and trying to scale those up. But even that is very, very complicated. But I'm sure Kain Pugh, who has actually been in the middle of the, the storm of all these kind of reform programs, can give some practical examples on you know, what, were, what the aim was and what the result was on the ground. Yeah, so thank you, Marie, for, for uh, clarifying this point. And really, I would like, maybe you can give some example from your experience why it didn't work out or what was the problem, uh, Kang Pyu, uh, that would be really uh, interesting to share with our uh, listeners. Thank you. Yes. So as, uh, as discussed, uh, there uh, were reforms planned, but at the same time, in everyone's opinions, the reforms were very ambitious at the national uh, level, at the national scale while the capacity and resources uh, were quite limited, both inside the ministry and also in terms of the government expenditure on education. So, uh, and in terms of the ministry people and even outside the ministry, who would be leading on those education reforms, including me, we have limited exposure to what can be achieved and, you know, what are other models we could aspire to. Uh, that is uh, uh, that causes a lot of limitations, and as Mary mentioned, the centralized decisions made at the ministry 
do not necessarily play out at the township and school level. And then at the school and townships level, there have been, you know, very weak institutional or school leadership because people, they have always been used to saying, yes, I will do this. And uh, I can also give uh, a, a few particular examples, like uh, the reform, uh, the biggest reform is KG plus 12. So the shorter secondary years of Myanmar were tried to be addressed by the curriculum reform process. And however, uh, there was the ambition, but there is not enough capacity inside the country to make the curriculum inclusive, fair, and also uh, up to the uh, quality they desire. So there have been international consultants, and then sometimes they know the country's context, sometimes they don't. And uh, uh, the, there are also uh, silos thinkings uh, among different development partners and different departments of the Ministry of Education. I can add one more example. So, for example, in basic education department, there will be the KG plus 12 curriculum reform. And then in the other sector, like teacher education, there will be the teacher competency standard framework. So these reforms could be better coordinated because the teacher education, they will eventually be teaching the KG plus 12 curriculum or helping the teachers reach desired levels of quality to teach those uh, uh, curriculum uh, after the revisions. So this sort of coordination issue, capacity issues and resource issues make the reforms not reaching its optimal. And then things want, uh, uh, you know, really bad uh, when uh, the coup happened because just before the coup in this January 2021, uh, we were quite hopeful that these uh, limitations would be addressed because there was the plan of national education strategic plan phase two, and then there were very good recognitions of the limitations like, you know, at every sector, there are issues about uh, inclusion, quality and access. And then there were strategic priorities spelled out to address those things. Of course, not every plan can be perfect, but we have been seeing promising things in those plans, but they were cut short in February. So thank you very much. You already mentioned the uh, coup d'etat, and uh, uh, which led, I would say, more or less to a breakdown of the education system. But even before, with COVID nineteen, lots of school have uh, lots of schools have been closed. Um, so what can you maybe can you give a, a short overview? What is happening at the moment? So is there education, and is there um, like our uh, is the NUG or is the military government is there? Um, are there talks about education or is the education sector, uh, so to say now, uh, out of sight at the moment? Uh, so maybe, Kang Piu, you can say something about thanks. this. Yes, I think we will need to divide the part into two after the uh, right after the COVID and also uh, after coup uh, has uh, increased the negative impact of COVID. So. March 2000, in March 2019, Myanmar first experienced uh, uh, COVID waves. And then at that time, the ministry tried to coordinate a COVID-19 response plan together with development partners. But for the very same reasons that I mentioned about lack of capacity and resources and coordination issues, the plan didn't reach fast scale. 
there where it talks about online learning, remote delivery model, and then they were not uh, uh, reaching out to all the children uh, as, uh, as expected. And then they were ending up on the uh, platforms, not much used by the students and not much facilitated by the teachers. So it was like that until uh, January 2021, right before the coup. At that time, people were recognizing that the COVID-19 response plan was not that effective. And then people were thinking of how to address that. And then the coup took place. And right after the coup, uh, the development partners, they stopped engagement with the Ministry of Education uh, for, uh, not, for not in a position to legitimize the uh, military regime through their associations with a, a government agency. So development partners stopped working with uh, uh, Ministry of Education. So the reform plans were stalled since then. There was a big GPE fund. We call it ESPIG, uh, uh, E-S-P-I-G, Education Sector Plan Implementation Grant, with loads of money inside, uh, like $100 million from World Bank and then $70 million from GPE that was stalled. And uh, ministry do not also have the right resources to carry on with the plans themselves. And I think that I should just add one more point uh, on the impact of coup, which made the education laws worsen, was the CDM versus non-CDM civil disobedience movement, uh, which in essence meant that people refused to walk under the uh, military regime. They stopped working for their respective government posts. And then that was joined mainly by education field people. So we had seen uh, we great losses of very experienced people from the field, and then they didn't come back, uh, and they are still continuing the CDM till now. I'll stop here for a moment. Yes, thank you. Um, so Marie, what do you think? What does this? Um, how do I say? It? What does this uh, stalemate or gridlock mean for the population, and especially for the young population in the country? Before I talk about that, I'd just like to add something to what Kaim Pew said. The country obviously is uh, very big and it's quite different depending on where you are. So what we are talking about here is really education across the Bama heartlands. Um, but there are two areas where things remain quite different, both under COVID and post-coup. One is Rakhine, where um, education, I understand, is operating quite normally, basic education, schools, teachers, everyone, in part because the local armed group, the Arakan Army, AA, has been telling the population, this is not our fight. This is not our problem. And then you have the other areas, which are on the Thai and the China border, which are also populated by ethnic armed groups, uh, and we can go into more detail if you wish um, later on. But many of these ethnic armed groups have their own education systems, which continued operating both um, uh, during COVID, depending on the levels of infection that there were, and also post-coup. So um, what we, have, we just need to make sure that the listeners understand that what we're talking about is really the Bama heartlands, the big cities, and so on and so forth. What the stalemate means for young people is it's a very difficult de decision because when we think about um, the two generations that are affected here, 
So there is the generation, which is sort of my generation, the ones who went through 1988. I didn't go through 1988, but I'm of the same age. Um, and an understand, I mean, having having had the kind of education kind you described earlier on, very sort of uh, top down, not questioning, no critical thinking, no uh, no going against the hierarchy. Um, many of those, not all, but many of those, have sort of um, looked at this coup and said, right, well, we just have to go through it. We just have to make our lives with it. Um, even if they don't agree with it. Very different to the younger generation that had the 10 years of reform that saw a different Myanmar was possible and their teachers and their academics, obviously, who are uh, older than them. And those are the ones who have rebelled. So for each family, you have the divisions within the families. And I hear that from my friends who have children who are um, 18, 19, 20, 21, um, who are worried about the future for their children um, but who also see that those kids want to go to the border, want to fight the regime uh, by hook or by crook, uh, rather than putting their head down and waiting for um, the storm to pass. So there is, for each family, these very difficult decisions on do we just make do with what there is and hope for the best and hope that in perhaps three years, five years, hopefully not longer than that, things will change again, or um, do we fight it? And the same thing within each academic institution for teachers who've decided to be on the CDM side, who've refused to work, who have lost their um, livelihood with it, and for academics who've lost their housing as a result and whose families have basically been kicked out of university accommodation if they're on CDM and um, if they have joined the the support for the NUG. So um, the country is really... Uh, at a stalemate, but it's also divided the country very, very deeply within families, within communities. Um, and I'm not quite sure how that's going to play out. Yes, thank you for pointing out these divisions and deep divisions you just mentioned. Uh, there was That was a point I also would like to talk about. Like uh, We have been talking about the, the Bama-dominated areas and the central government. You mentioned the um, Rakhine state. Um, and of course, we cannot look into each every state and each and every different education system. But I would like to know um, what do you think? What uh, do these splits or this separated education system? What does it mean for education overall or in the uh, in the overall country that you have like different systems, different places, different standards? And maybe Kang Pu, you can uh, say something about these divided education system. Uh, actually, the main provision uh, has been done by the Ministry of Education, but definitely in the border areas, there are systems of education set up by ethnic uh, organizations. Uh, so we should be, we will be seeing Mon education system, Kachin education system, and then they have varying degrees of similarity with the uh, Ministry of Education provision. So, for example, some of the Kachin schools, they will adopt the MOE curriculum, but at the same time, they may have different assessment uh, standards devised at their own uh, will. Uh, and for Mon education system, they will be using the MOE curriculum, but there will be uh, mother tongue-based multilingual education initiatives so that there will be Mon language speakers, Mon language teachers uh, in schools. And then that is coordinated between uh, the MOE and the MON uh, uh, education uh, providers. So we will see different uh, degrees of collaboration between MOE and those systems. But for some systems like Kachin, 
uh, as some of the Kachin schools, they may not talk to MOE at all. So it is quite diverse. And at the same time, very interesting to see how different pathways are created for children. Uh, so in Kachin, they will not, the students who complete the Kachin secondary education, they will not be joining MOE universities because MOE universities are also quite centralized, uh, government owned. Uh, so they will be uh, finding different pathways and chain groups. They have set up their own higher education institutions like teacher training uh, institution, uh, law institution, etc. So what I have been seeing in relation to this school is that uh, there have been a lot of talks about federal education system, which has been desired, I think, since uh, uh, in the since right after the colonial days that you know. Uh, education systems should be catering to the different needs of different people in different situations. And that will also make sure that children can learn at least in the lower levels of education in their own mother tongues. And also, they will also be able to pursue things outside the Ministry of Education uh, provision. Like, for example, they may be linked up with regional universities for some current uh, uh, students. In current education systems, right after their secondary, they might go to Thailand and then their education might be recognized by Thai authorities and then they can, you know, uh, attend uh, universities in, you know, uh, Chiang Mai, etc. So for an academic, this is this sort of diversity is to be welcomed. And uh, uh, one of the most interesting uh, topic we have been hearing is about the setup of federal universities in ethnic education areas. And that federal university would be really inclusive and also uh, will be more linked up with regional and international standards. So I think these uh, moves uh, will be uh, uh, as seen as positive, uh, some positive impact of the coup. So we can maybe say like the divisions of the education system reflect uh, the divisions of the country or the other way around. So maybe, uh, Marie, what is your take? Like, what do you think about this uh, diversified education system? What is in favor or what is against such a system? So this problem of uh, having children going to different types of schools um, has, be, has been in existence um, well, since the conflict started, so <laughs> from the 1960s onwards. Um, but uh, more recently, uh, in the, as the conflict uh, increased in the 80s and 90s, the education systems that were developed by the armed groups really became full-fledged um, systems with schools, and in certain cases, as Kain Pugh has mentioned, in Kachin in particular, also some higher education colleges. Now, uh, one of the big... Um, missed opportunities of the F reform process between 2012 and 2020 was to um, engage with those systems and give them an equivalence so that students who were going through a MON school, actually MON is one of the exceptions, MON, you can actually switch between the systems, but for, through a through a Kachin school or through a Karen school or even through some of the schools run by the RCSS, which is an armed group in Shan State, um, that they would then be able to uh, move, switch back into the Myanmar system. And whilst the World Bank was promoting and proposing this kind of a, uh, a collaboration between the Ministry of Education and some of the ethnic systems 
it did not result, because the coup happened, it did not result in an actual um, system where one would see an equivalence of a child being able to switch between grades and between school systems. And the other thing um, which was a big missed opportunity was the issue of language. So um, good practice across education in uh, multilingual societies is that you have something called mother tongue-based multilingual education, something just briefly mentioned by Kang Fu, is something which is propagated um, in Myanmar by only in the Mon schools correctly, where they actually start in Mon and then teach Burmese, and then the children can actually be properly bilingual by the time that they leave the school system. Instead, what happens in Myanmar in most places is that if children go to a government school, even if they've never heard Burmese before, the teacher will be speaking Burmese to them, and they will have this shock of um, not understanding the teacher, and that results in a lot of ethnic children dropping out of school. More recently, what these reforms did was to actually offer teaching ethnic languages during the school day in ethnic areas. But that is not the same as teaching in the ethnic language, which means that children still continue to have that sort of uh, linguistic shock when they arrive. So a big missed opportunity. And what Kaimfu was mentioning is really important. The coup has uh, resulted in NUG personnel as in mostly NLD people who have now formed the NUG, to think about what it means to be ethnic in Myanmar. Because the way the Tatmadaw has treated the students on the streets um, in Yangon and in Mandalay and across the country resembles very much the way that they have treated ethnic um, communities on the border for many decades. And so this thinking has suddenly resulted in a more positive outlook to doesn't always need to just be Burma dominated, everything through Burmese. Perhaps we should value the diversity um, and make sure, and therefore this federal education system could become a possibility in the future, certainly not under Tatmadaw rule, but could become a possibility in the future um, as there is a greater recognition of the richness of the diversity and the importance of giving everyone um, equivalent education, and that can only happen when children understand the teacher in schools. I don't know if you have recognized our title melody from the podcast, which is the Nagani song. And in that song, there is a line which says, if you read books, you get rich. And if you get rich, you can build more pagodas. And what does this say about the educational ideal of Myanmar? Maybe Kang Pyu, you can start saying something about the educational ideal. Yes, it, it is changing. In the past, in my days, people will be quite complacent with what we what we have in life. And then that is also in line with the Buddha's uh, teaching. I don't really think that Buddha will mean we should be happy with whatever little things we have. He, uh, you know, the more and I understand the real Buddha's teaching, uh, you know, he will uh, advise uh, uh human beings to strive for what they can get. But it has been misinterpreted in our days that we should be, uh, you know, uh, we should not be uh, questioning too much to our elders. We should not be challenging the, the existing systems too much, etc. That is what we have been exposed to. And there are also stereotypes of characters that we were exposed to us in the curriculum. So that sort of, you know, Nagani song, 
there will be different views on it, especially from different generations these days. And then uh, when I was, you know, uh, uh, listening to Dr. Mary Lars talking about different generations, you know, we, our age, about 40 or 50, we are termed by the younger generations as Generation L. And then they said, we have become too passive. And then we have become too uh, docile uh, to oppose uh, any injustices. And the Generation Z, they termed themselves, the youths, they said, we will not be like you. So we, we love the way you were brought up. We love the way you uh, were, you know, uh, pushed into a corner and then, you know, uh, sat there. So we will not be like that. We will try our best. Even if we lose our lives, we will try to do that. But for the generation L, L like that, it is very much different. <laughs> um, what does this generation L, what does this L stand for? Uh, actually, it's not a very good name. So it's a, like a kind of a bad label to people who uh, accept everything lying down. Okay. Um, okay, so you already mentioned the Generation Z, and both of you have talked about the different perceptions and, and ideas um, different generations have, of course, like in every society. So, And it has often been said that the Generation Z is different from previous younger generations because the reforms of the last decade have given them access to international media, broadening their perspective and horizon. And... Um, how do you assess the impact of these developments, including the role, for example, of social media, which uh, opened a window for lots of people to see what in the out uh, the world beyond the borders of Myanmar is happening and send, so this kind of things. So what do you think about the general standard of education in the country in those 10 years and also related to the Internet and the access to the, I would put it like like to the knowledge or the ideas of the world. And maybe, Marie, you can start with this point. So I think, again, we need to be careful when we're talking about Myanmar not to take it as one sort of, uh, as one hegemonic um, idea. I mean, what we are talking about really uh, when we're talking about Generation Z, in the first instance, we are talking about the urban young population that had access to um, social media, the internet, and so on and so forth. In rural areas, um, it, it took a little while to get there. So Generation Z, um, start, the reforms actually started to impact Generation Z from 2005 onwards, and that was largely through the growth of private schools. So whereas private schools were not legal in Myanmar, they existed, and um, the way that they existed, they were supplementary schools teaching English and computer. And under English, as I describe in my book, they were teaching all sorts of the social sciences and languages. And under computers, they were teaching maths and sciences. Um, and these schools then developed into full-fledged schools when uh, recognized schools when the uh, reforms started. And although their, um, their certificates are not accepted, so you can't go to a private school and then automatically get ad admission to a Myanmar university. A lot of urban middle class parents chose those because it would give their children better access to English and potentially a better life going abroad. Now, this is the generation that has grown up um, with all these changes. Uh, as the mobile phone started to spread, social media started to spread, and social media had both good and bad effects. We will all remember 
what happened uh, post-2012 with social media um, spreading fake news about Muslims in the country and the whole issue that we had with Northern Rakhine and the Rohingyas. And uh, all of that was also linked to the opening up um, of social media and Facebook in particular. Uh, so it was not only that the younger generation was able to look um, at Thailand and Singapore and China and the United States and Europe and see what was going on there, but also it um, actually brought uh, a reaction, a nationalist reaction and backlash, which is why it's interesting if we link it to the song that you were just talking about, the building of more pagodas, the centrality of Buddhism is not something that um, has been put aside by the younger generation. They might look at Buddhism differently in the sense that they would not just want to put gold on a pagoda if they make money, um, but they do see their Buddhist identity as very important. And I remember doing a... a, a a survey with over 2,000 young people um, uh, in the sort of 2012, 2013, 2014, talking about citizenship. And so many of the young people, including ethnic minorities who might not necessarily have been Buddhist, said, um, in order to be Myanmar, you have to be Buddhist. So all these things are interlinked with each other. So if there is an opening up, but like with many countries, when there is an opening up, there's also a nationalist and religious backlash. Um, and I think uh, it would be interesting to see how Generation Z that lived through this sort of um, opening up and nationalist backlash um, is viewing the country now. I, what I'm saying, it would be interesting if one could be would be able to run a survey now or spend some time with them in the field and asking them how they feel um, about uh, traditional Myanmar values and society today. Yes, so you have mentioned this um nationalist backlash and um i would like to talk a little bit maybe about political education before we come to the end like demands of the of the protesters right now are like uh, um, freedom democracy federalism um so these are really um political terms and what would you say about the uh, state of political education so um, how much do people really know and understand about terms like democracy federalism and um, how did the education system contribute to this understanding? Or is there some more need to uh, talk about these things? Uh, thanks, Rodion. Yes. Uh, in the education system, like you said, there is much more to be done so that uh, youth and children, they have real understanding of uh, democracy or polit uh, politics. because. Uh, what we experienced in the past uh, through the curriculum and through the environment was that if you are a teacher or a student, you should be staying away from politics. These are not good for you. These will just uh, uh, label you as a, a kind of troublemaker. Uh, so the, the, and then this will also leave you astray from the peaceful path. And then so... Uh, I was a university teacher myself, and then under that, you know, thinking, brought up with that thinking, I was, you know, at one time not really encouraging, you know, youths to uh, trying to understand more about politics because, you know, I have a very simple reason. I don't want them to end up uh, in jail. So I have very limited views of politics. And then now I see that if I have better understanding of politics and that if my students have better understanding of politics, we will not be, 
you know, uh, arriving to such a situation now. If we know the real history, and then even in the secondary school curriculum, the history we were exposed to was quite limited, championing, you know, Myanmar heroes, and then, you know, uh, portraying that, you know, uh, uh, women are to be docile homemakers. Uh, so these were really, you know, not, uh, I think, not the right sort of education. So definitely we need to improve on that. But at the same time, the system around, the, beyond the education system as well, the environment should be accepting uh, these teachings and then these sort of learning so that youths have the right level of thinking, right sort of critical thinking, and then they also need to lead their own way and contribute in the right way to the country's development. I wanted to add something to that because I think um, what's really important to understand is that um, it would always take time for an education system that comes um, out of a, a military dictatorship to be able to turn itself around in a way that it can start talking about critical thinking, that it can start talking about issues such as democracy. And I just want to put in brackets here that democracy was not on offer, not under the NLD, not under President Thinsane. But um, uh, clearly it is an ambition of the NUG and of the Generation Z to work towards democracy. But that in that period of uh, pre-reform and reform, it was a rather civil society that educated the young people and largely their parents as well about what democracy means, what um, what kind of political education would be required um, for the country to change. And we should not forget that a lot of, uh, you know, whilst the education system was not able to make that jump, um, that civil society, those civil society organizations or that tradition of civil society organizations still exists in Myanmar. And that even if education goes back to the Stone Age in terms of not being able to challenge the system, there will be civil society organizations that will continue to take that forward. Okay, thank you very much. So we are almost at the end. So I would like to um, give you the, the possibility to think about possible future scenarios. So we are thinking into the future right now. So um, what would you think or how should an educational system in Myanmar look like, which would be acceptable by the population and supported in their ideas uh, to become a sovereign, uh, united um, country? So maybe, Kang Pyu, you can make like like outline how such a educational system would have to look like from your point of view yes uh i would like to see a diverse uh education system catering to different needs uh of different uh types of students and also enabling them for uh opportunities after education so right now in the education system we have, we might get loads of degrees, but the qualifications are not recognized that we can't find employment easily, even inside the country. So we need to make sure that the education system is strong enough to provide people with real opportunities. And uh, in terms of forward look, I must say the future I see in the next three or four years at least is quite grim because uh, it will be quite uh, 
difficult for the Ministry of Education, who has been the major provider of education, to address <coughs> the loss of teachers through CDM and also the trust on the education system that they are providing is lost. Uh, so it will take time to build it up. But at the same time, the private education sector and the other edu ethnic or complementary education systems will be catching up. So I see the hope there that private and, you know, ethnic education uh, uh, provisions can fill the gap. But there is one big issue remains that the, the, there are loads of children. There are about 9.7 million children in Myanmar. And then for those who can access private or ethnic or complementary education systems will still be very limited. So many children will still be losing out from the chance to learn. And then with the loss of the chance to learn, there will be, you know, numerous risks like dropouts, early marriage, child trafficking, etc. So I really hope that there will be <clears throat> in consideration for education uh, by the stakeholders, all the stakeholders inside the country, and then uh, uh, stop politicizing education too much. So this is my last point. Okay, thank you. So, and Marie, so what, what is your idea? How would a good education system for Myanmar look like in the future? I think Kaim Few has actually outlined um, uh, the ideal education system for Myanmar, including all the sort of difficulties that um, it, it's going to face. I would just like to add one final point. Myanmar society tends to be divided. It's divided on ethnic grounds. It's divided between the Tatmadaw and the non, those who are not part of the military. Um, whatever the future education system brings, it will have to heal those divides for the country to go forward together. That includes the ethnic groups and their armed groups, and that includes the military and their families. Otherwise, the country will, at the next hurdle, again, divide itself and fight amongst themselves. So I think the ideal education system for Myanmar will be one that recognizes all the different fissures uh, but between communities within the wider society and tries to include all of them um, and uh, give them an opportunity for an inclusive future. So thank you very much. I think this is a very good ending and let's hope that um, the future education system can bridge all these divides uh, in the country. And uh, thank you um, for listening to Myanmar in a Potshell. Please tune in again next time. Thank you.